Today's program is brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Please take a moment to like the show on iTunes if you're so inclined, and please reach out if you have any questions. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on social media at thefoodballer. Today's episode number 45 and the start of the third season, Feast Your Ears, here on Heritage Radio Network. Uh, today's episode was recorded live uh, on August 28th in Lincolnville, Maine, at the Sewell Orchard. Bob Sewell is the operator of the oldest certified organic orchard in the state of Maine and makes incredible cider as well as apple cider vinegar on his farm. Uh, if you're in the Midcoast Maine region in the fall, make sure to stop in and see Bob and Mia. The orchard is beautiful. Uh, they offer pick-your-own cider. You can buy vinegar. Uh, and they have an Airbnb, so if you're looking for somewhere to stay in Midcoast, Maine, uh, definitely check them out. Uh, please enjoy the uh, interview, and it'll take you back to summer. All right. Uh, well, this is a uh, first in-the-field recording for Feast Your Ears. I'm sitting here on a beautiful August Sunday morning with Bob Sewell uh, at Sewell's Orchard in Lincolnville, Maine. Thank you, Bob, for agreeing to be on the radio show. You're welcome, Harry, and welcome to the farm. Thank you. Um, so, uh, Bob, I wanted to, to talk a little bit about the orchard, about farming, about Maine. Um, and so you grew up in Maine, right? In yes, Waterville? I did. Waterville, Maine. Um, and you have decided to stay in Maine. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's a beautiful state. Uh, I love it. I was married here. I spend time here. I've spent a lot of time here over my life. Um, when did you start farming? I planted my first garden organic garden in 1973, which was essentially 8 by 12 feet, and I was finishing up my college degree. Were there a lot of people doing organic gardening and farming in Maine at that time? Not really. It's interesting, because I mean, I, you know, I, I, my sense of it now, at least in this area, in the Midcoast region, is that there are quite a few people who are doing that. I mean, there is the Common Ground Fair in Unity, which is sort of based on, you know, it's all about organic farming. So at that time, there were not that many people? It, really, the um, organic movement was just taking off at that point. You know, everybody was aware of um, Rodell and uh, the Nearings yep. were established. And so they were were kind of the, the, the pushing um, force behind people and the back-to-land movement. and I had grown up always outdoors. and So you weren't back to the land, you were just staying on the land. I was just yes, <laughs> trying to stay put, yeah. yes. Um, and then how did you come to, to apples and, and the orchard? <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> well, I've, I've always loved trees. I had worked as an arborist when I was younger and 
I was a main guide when I was 16. So I've always been involved in the outdoors and apple trees were just fascinating to me. There were a lot of the old orchards were still around. They'd been deserted and I would go around and scavenge whatever I could. I met a lot of my neighbors that way because I would be pilfering their apples. And <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of them. I mean, I, you know, having, having spent a lot of time in my life, I feel like driving around the roads in, in this area of Maine, and I don't know if it's true in the rest of Maine, I'm familiar with this area, there are apple trees all over the place. And so, you know, certainly when I'm here in the fall, if I see one, I just stop and try them. And, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know if there's, a, if there's any kind of actual metric about how often you're going to find one that's actually edible, but I would say, I don't know, one in five, maybe. I mean, a lot of them you taste, they're either cider varieties or there's some variety that's just not yep. tasty. But Most of the old farm orchards have a few hanger-oners, and um, they have gone to seed, and you've got more of a, a wild apple. Yep. But Maine was all rural, really. There was very few city centers. And, right. Um, small towns and every town had its own varieties and kind of its own ethnic um, people that brought what they liked and with them and everybody kind of farmed um, sustainably and that's the way the life was in Maine up until the 20th century. Sure. And uh, and your orchard, uh, Sewell's, has the distinction of being the oldest continuously operated organic orchard in the state. Correct? Yes, yes. And, and how long has this orchard been here? I started preparing the soil in 1978. And really the, the way that it all got started, even though I love trees and all that, is that my neighbor was a finished dairy farmer and we became really good friends and I would um, use his field to build my first little house, which was just a 16 by 20 um, cabin and we became really close and he was going to sell the farm to the family and that fell through at the last minute and he offered to sell me these adjoining hay fields to my woodlot and I said um, I'd love to buy them I just have to figure out how to get the money and he said well I know you love apple trees he said why don't you plant an orchard he said I'll sponsor you with farm family administration hmm. and that was during the Carter administration where Jimmy Carter was um, focusing on loaning money to small part-time farms and I walked in the door and they offered me pretty much anything I wanted and hmm. I took twelve thousand dollars and that was enough to buy the land and buy my apple trees and the rest of it I just kind of put together from that point on. And when you first started the orchard, was the intent to grow apples for eating or for cider or for both? I was really focusing on um, young families, especially children. Uh, my dad was uh, a doctor and he was very um, ahead of his time in a lot of ways, speaking out against antibiotics in the 60s and you know, making sure that we got all the infections that we could as kids. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, a lot of the back then in the 70s, I'd done some reading and was aware of how pesticides were mimicking um, the uh, sexual developmental hormones and they would key in, the pesticides would key in, and that that was becoming an issue for the development of young children. 
And so I wanted this as an option for families because babies love apple juice and applesauce. Yep. And, um, so I was really focusing on, on a pick-your-own with no sprays possible because I really didn't want to upset the biosphere. Um, and I, I didn't really want to have that philosophy of... If I get a problem, I'm going to kill it, and unfortunately, I'm going to kill everything else and then sure. really make things unstable. So I go through, you know, ups and downs of problems, but pretty much things have stayed very, very healthy. I mean, they started driving up today through the orchard. The apples look great. <laughs> I hope to come back in October and have them when they're ready. <laughs> well, we'll look forward to that. <laughs> um, and so uh, then you got into, into cider making? Yeah, Later. and cider was my other focus at that point. Um, so a pick-your-own and cider, I felt, would be my marketing key. Dessert apples was not what I was interested in because I knew what it would take. And, of course, um, everybody at that point in the apple industry was focused on semi-dwarf, dwarf trees and and dessert apples, and I was focusing on standard trees and um, cider and pick your own. Yep. And, um, so I was pretty much on my own. Yeah, I mean, we definitely, you know, it's a it's a hard conversation sometimes from the retailer side of things with at the Brooklyn Kitchen to to explain to customers why the apples don't necessarily look great. Um, you know, to explain why. You know, oh well, these apples are organic, and to explain to them that if if you want that sort of perfect, idealized Garden of Eden style apple, that unfortunately getting that without, you know, without the use of pesticides and herbicides and other things is nearly impossible. That that's a product that was created by industrial agriculture, in fact, not what apples would have looked like 150 years ago. Correct, and that's why a lot of the old varieties, the heirloom varieties, were really resistant to a lot of these things. Yep. You know, when they brought Macintosh into Maine, there was no scab on apples until they brought Macintosh. Macintosh was highly susceptible to it, and yep. it was the biggest crop. It was the cooking apple, and but it just devastated um, a lot of the other varieties and created more of a problem. So what varieties do you grow now on the farm? I, I planted two of the original um, organic varieties that Stark Brothers had, and that was uh, called the Prima, which is a hybrid Jonathan, fungal and disease-resistant, a Priscilla, which is really from the natural origins of a Red Delicious, and it doesn't look like it, it doesn't tastes like what you see on the market today. Children love it. It's a smaller, hard, good keeper. Um, the Prima is a good baking, a good cider apple. And then I love Golden Delicious, so I put them in. And I did do some traditional reds, but I also planted all kinds of heirloom varieties um, intermixed all through the orchard from um, Red Astrakhan to Black Oxford um, Liberty, which is kind of a newer hybrid of a Mac, which is a pretty good, it's okay. I, I'm not a big Mac fan. Um, but um, Ben Davis, you know, it just kind of goes on. There's a, 
a ton of these old varieties, and there are people who still love them. I mean, I got old timers that come up and they say, "Do you have any red astrakhans this year? Do you have this, or do you have crab apples?" Uh, people uh, have kind of lost that connection to a lot of these older varieties. Sure. And um, a friend of mine, John Bunker, that I went to school with, has done a lot with restoring the varieties. He's kind of the specialist on the heirlooms. And we're always, you know, communicating about, okay, what do you have? What's working nice? You know, yep. what, have, what have you found? And so it's, it's really, it's fun. I mean, I'm a grower. I'm not um, somebody that's, you know, out doing anything other than growing and trying to um, establish my own markets. Yep. And so do all of those varieties make it into your cider? Eventually. Yeah. <laughs> it ends up being a mix <laughs> yeah and I, I love golden so I'll do sometimes just for myself I'll do just goldens mm. um, and you can mix them all up and I've never heard anybody saying they don't like the cider the biggest thing is that some people don't like a really really sweet cider in a late season cider after you've had a little frost and all that sure really drives the sugars and the starches and then it just almost gets syrupy yeah and that makes the best vinegar you you led me right where i was going to go next <laughs> with my question so so also um so the the two or i guess the, the three products of sewell's orchard are apples and then your cider yes. and your vinegar correct so how did you how did you get into making vinegar well i've always loved um the concept of vinegar from reading Dr. Javis, who was a Vermont doctor who wrote about all the different remedies of organic apple cider vinegar. And I thought, well, you know, this is a good way of being able to store my product. I don't have big refrigeration. I mean, I'm building everything as I've been going on over these years, and um, I just didn't have storage. So I'd either have to freeze my cider or sell everything during season, all my apples and cider. And so I started playing around with the vinegars about 25 years ago and um, developing that as a marketable item. And, of course, 25 years ago, nobody wanted vinegar. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't sell vinegar. <laughs> sure. And I've always wanted to play with um, putting flower essences into the vinegars as infusions and have like um, my marketing is kind of heading that way to have a, a variety for people just to help them give a little boost during their day, either for vigor or for yep. relaxation or for de-stressing or for mental vigor. And there's all different types of um, flower essences that people are really you know, focusing more and more on these days. And that's that's where I'm headed in my retirement and why I'm putting up this new building to have the storage and be able to to do this on really a low-scale, low local. You know, I'm, yep. I'm very limited on what I can do. Two to 3,000 gallons of vinegar a year is about as much as I want to be marketing. Yep. And I want to do age vinegars. You know, I used to have a 10-year-old age vinegar until um, we had a fire and lost um, our, our 
aged vinegar. So I've been kind of building, building that, that back. back up. Man. Sure. And your vinegar, so your process for your vinegar is you take your cider and let it naturally ferment through with the yeast and bacteria that's just on the apples? I started, correct, um, I started with the yeast from the orchard, and apples have maybe 25,000 different yeast, so you can get all kinds of different things happening. But... The only yeast that works under 40 degrees, by what I understand, is alcohol. So if I have some cider that's starting to turn, yep. I keep that in my cooler. And when I'm making my vinegar, I'll start it with that because that really gets the activation going. And it makes an, a nicer flavored vinegar. And then when that starts to slow down, then I'll take mothers from really good batches that I have and drop that into it yep. and I usually wait three years before my vinegar is five and a half percent it's a cold process I'm yep. not adding proteins I'm not adding heat I'm not adding sugars it's just what's in the vinegar and you know we're talking acetic acid and so that can go down a funky road indeed <laughs> <laughs> It, cer it certainly can. Yes, and it can smell like acetone. Yep. It can get yep. a really funky flavor, and it can change back and forth. And yep. um, I need to really balance out my understanding of chemistry a little bit better. But you know, it's an alcohol to vinegar balance that yep. you're looking for. And, and I do everything by taste. Yeah. If it doesn't taste good to me, and I mean, that's, that is the number one, you know, that, that is the recommendation I tell people all the time when they say, well, I'm making pickles or I'm fermenting beer or wine or cider or, you know, kvass, whatever, you know, how do I know if it's good? And I said, well, you taste it, right? I mean, and that's the Correct. same thing with apples, right? I mean, <laughs> yes. how do you know when they're ready, right? You pull one off the tree and you taste it, right? Pretty much. <laughs> and most um, hard cider operations, especially the Europeans, they wait till they start dropping. Sure. And that's usually an indication things are perfectly ready. But heat can make them drop. Stress right. can make them drop. And you need to keep the orchard clean. And good husbandry is a good way to keep a lot of your pest problems down and, and diseases. And so, you know, I've always just tried to keep everything clean. Um, some people don't believe that I have management practices because I don't spray, because right. I'm not conventional. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I try not to have such a narrow focus um, in my farming practices. I plant clover for the deer. Um, I'm not fenced in. The trees are big enough so, you know, they can handle, you know, low-level browsing. Um, and it also gives me the ability to get my equipment down through the orchard. Um, I have a picker to pick up my drops, and that needs really smooth, flat ground, so I don't bring heavy equipment in. Everything's, you know, low impact. Yep. And I spent two years preparing the soil because I wanted the nutritional value. And that's what you're looking for in your food is how, how high a percentage you have on your nutritional value yep. and conventional agriculture can't perform 
at the same levels that an organic soil, which, you know, you've got the microorganisms, you've got all the, the minerals and everything working um, to feed the trees and give you good nutrition. And you, that's what you want. Yeah. <laughs> Do you feel like the current organic standards um, are sort of the same as the standards that you held when you started this farm? Or do you feel like large modern agriculture has sort of changed that? I believe in a soils up organic management, healthy soil, healthy plant, healthy people. Um, those standards don't take into consideration the soil. You, your amendments and all that, yes, it does. But it's not required that you really focus on that for building up the plant's um, resistance and its health and all of those aspects. I mean, hydroponics is considered sure. organic. And, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of debate on all those issues. And I think everybody's got different practices to... F to fit their needs and to say my practice is better than anybody else's is, is a fallacy. It works great for me. Yep. And yeah. um, I, and it seems to work great here on, you know, in Lincolnville, Maine, on the, on the mountain. <laughs> now you also have a blueberry field on the hill as well. Yes. Yeah. More or less. <laughs> uh, have you ever, have you ever made a blueberry vinegar? I have played with it yeah. a little bit, but I'm not really into working the blueberry fields i'm keeping the fields open i just haven't had time sure um up until a year ago i always worked as a stonemason in construction so i was doing my farming nights and weekends for 40 years and so now that i'm retired and i can just focus on Getting my just, new building, just up. running the farm, <laughs> building a building, doing the sheetrock in the new apartment, right? Just, you know, retirement. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the easy stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I love, um, I, I love a project, and I love to see things grow. And I really try to just be present and observe, and I do a lot just by my intuition. So I'm I'm really running against the conventional grain of things. I'm if the herd's headed down the road, I'm headed up the road. Yeah. I just can't go that route, and um, I don't vilify anybody for making their choices. Uh, they do what they have to do. Well, I mean, it, it it seems it seems to be working well. So I'd like to understand a little bit better about kind of the. The, the the workload over time of, of of the orchard. So obviously, you know, this time of year, August, you're watching the trees, you're making sure that they sort of have what they need, that there aren't serious pest infestations. But the real heavy lifting, so to speak, or heavy picking, I guess, um, comes much later. Comes in October, and I and I assume that that's not just you and your wife Mia who do all of that work. No, I usually have around six people who work on the farm, and I have a good. Um, relationship with most everybody who's ever worked on this farm. A lot of young people who've worked here have gone on to become farmers and not necessarily orchardists, but very successful in in their own um, ventures. Um, we actually start 
around the 10th of September, cleaning up the orchard, thinning the trees where they need to be thin, uh, especially last year where we it was just a super crop. It was a once-in-a-lifetime crop, and we just had to strip these trees. And most of that ends out going to the, the Common Ground Fair. And I used to be pretty much the main cider provider at the fair until the FDA passed their new regulations and made cider a juice, and we fell under juice regulations, um, which meant that I had to do a five-log reduction in pathogens, which means you sterilize the food to meet those standards, which to me, that's unethical. It just doesn't float at all. And, and the FDA controls um, wholesaling, and they really targeted... Um, the small producers, and they're pretty punitive. Um, they show right, you... Because your cider used to be available commercially. I mean, you used to wholesale it to people. I, I mean, I remember, you know, you could get it at the Belfast Co-op, and I'm sure lots of other places in this area. Yes, yes, and never have had a problem. I mean, cider is... will kill all forms of E. coli except 157H. Just the cider alone. Vinegar will kill it. On contact, um, I have meat producers who use it as a sterilizer. Um, I use it in my food. I like rare meat, um, so I don't have to worry about it. It'll kill it. It'll kill E. coli salmonella in your system. Um, once you pasteurize, you're, you're really upsetting the natural balance of the cider to protect itself. So once those preservers have and um, the pasturation has set for a while, you can get problems. Probably worse than if you don't pasteurize. Sure. Because if you don't pasteurize, all it's going to do is turn to alcohol and then vinegar. Right. So it, it protects itself. The cider actually protects itself. And the whole E. coli 157H is um, a product of Feeding corn the cows, yep. antibiotics, killing natural flora in the cows, letting the more benign, deadly ones flourish. You put the cows out the pasture, it disappears. I've never heard of any place else where that um, bacteria or pathogen yep. comes from on a, on a broad scale in um, our environment. So it, this is a problem that's been handed down and been used as an excuse to me in a lot of ways to be punitive to, to small um, processors who want to give you living foods. Sure. Absolutely. And, and unfortunately, I mean, with, you know, it reminds me of what happened last year, the year before when the, I believe it was the USDA, uh, said that you could no longer age cheese on wood. And, you know, luckily, I mean, you know, on, on the one hand, the, the, the sort of the cheese making, uh, the cheese makers, folks like uh, Jasper Hill in Vermont, who are big enough now and are doing enough volume and have, you know, and are doing great and are making incredible cheese from really good milk, you know, were able to go to Washington and say, wait a minute, you have to understand that this needs a little more research. This is not, you can't do that, right? Unfortunately, you know, the small scale cider producers don't have the time or the money or, you know, the ability to sort of fight against that at the moment. 
Um, I would hope that it would change, that we would come back to a point where, you know, people can get, you know, real living cider. I mean, I, I've had your cider, and I would encourage anyone who is in the mid-coast region of Maine to find their way here, to find you, to get some cider and to get some vinegar, because it's, it, it, it is an incredible product. Um, and, you know, even though, sure, at the Union Square Green Market in Manhattan, you can buy cider, but it has been pasteurized. It has either yeah. been pasteurized with UV or it's been chemically pasteurized uh, with potassium metabisulfate. One of those, one of those two things. And there's really no other way to do it. We the FDA is you know they can't re- reinvent practices that have gone on for thousands of years, and that society has learned that that's the best way to make cheese. To process foods for food storage and to keep people healthy. You cannot live in a sterile environment. And we are not the problem. So small producers are doing everything they can to have the highest quality of food as possible. Of course. Why would you do it any other way? Yeah. (laughs) But industrialized food, that's not their bottom line. Their bottom line is how much they can squeeze out of every little food product in monetary gain that they can, regardless of what it does for our benefit health-wise. We, we, I mean, all of us who are alive at this moment today are living proof that all of these old methods worked, right? I mean, all of human history, you know, the FDA has only been around since 1906, right? The Clean Food and Drug Act. I mean, you know, so that's a very short amount of time looking back at human history. And it was set up because of more industrialized farming and food processing. Yep. Because the problems yep. all of a sudden appeared. Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. Big thank you to Kristen Baylor, my producer here at Feast Your Ears, and David Tatashore, who engineers this show every Wednesday. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. Follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.